2 Corinthians 12 is where we pick up. I'll read a representative portion. I'm going to read from 7 to 10. We're going to do 1 through 10 today. I'll read 7 through 10. We'll pray, and then we'll dive in. This is a wonderful passage. I mean, this is some of the meaty, meaty stuff in 2 Corinthians. So chapter 12, verse 7 says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am, you can say it, church, strong. Amen? So 2 Corinthians 12 is in that section between chapters 10 and chapter 12 that really deal with the false apostles that Paul has had to handle in the church in Corinth. I'm not going to give the great long introduction now. First, we start with a question and set the stage. So the overall theme for today, and maybe you picked up on it in the passage we read, Paul's really super concerned with people thinking more highly of him than they ought to. We all are concerned with what other people think about us. We're usually concerned that people think better of us. We want people to think more highly of us. We kind of feel like we've got to promote ourselves. And we live in a self-promoting culture. But for Paul, it was the opposite, which is why I take the time to mention it, why I take the time to give this introduction. We live in a culture of self-promotion, so we don't always recognize the tendency we have to brag about who we are and what we've done, because we want people to go, wow, and we want them to like us, and we want them to friend us, and all these things. So we have to look at that and understand that, so we understand what is this culture of heaven, what is this culture of God, and how do we live that way? So here's just an example. Harvard Business Review. Imagine you're at a networking event in the United States, and you hear your colleague make the following statement to a potential employer. Here's the statement. I'd be very interested in learning more about your company to see if there might be a fit for me. Before doing my MBA, I worked at Bain Consulting, and then prior to that, was an officer in the Army. Now, that's the statement understanding that that's only a portion of the conversation, how would you judge what you just heard? Would you say, A, that guy was too self-promotional. A person is speaking too positively about himself in the situation. Or would you say the other end, he was not promotional enough. I mean, he could have given a lot more details. He could have sold himself better. I mean, if he really wanted the job or really was interested, he could have sold himself better. Or would you say, it was just right. He did the right amount of talking about himself, but not over the top. So A, he was too self-promotional. B, he was not promotional enough. Or C, he was just right. How many of you say C was just right? Okay, now there's no right or wrong answer. No right or wrong answer. So that's good. A lot of people, first service, the majority of people said just about right. How many of you say, you know, he could have done better selling himself. He could have done a better job promoting himself. Okay, good. Honesty. How many of you say, ooh, I was uncomfortable with what he shared? Too self-promotional. Okay, so zero. Now, the interesting thing about this scenario is that people that come to America 
from another country or another culture look at this same scenario and they say, hey, this guy was way too self-promotional. And that's because we live in a culture that is very familiar with and used to self-promotion. It's the way we live. We live in a bragging culture. Matter of fact, the same Harvard Business Review article said it's hard to quantify, but we believe the United States is the most overtly self-promotional country in the world. So we're steeped in bragging and self-promotion and we don't even see it. It's what we wear. It's what we drive. It's our Instagram posts. It's our Facebook posts. Matter of fact, the New York Times did an op-ed article called The Self-Promotion Backlash. And it says, from building your personal brand to stepping up your social media presence, we're constantly inundated with advice about how to promote ourselves. Then the article goes on to say, but some are saying that the pressure to self-promote could ultimately be hurting us. Would you agree with that? Would you generally agree that we live in a self-promoting kind of culture? So we come into Christianity out of this and as part of this steeped in this culture of self-promotion, and then that thing can become apparent in then our spiritual lives, in the church, and all that. And what we want to do is say, okay, what is the culture of heaven? So what's our example in the Bible, and how do we recognize, by the way, Instagram, maybe you heard this, I think this is new news, Instagram is disbanding, doing away with public likes function in their platform. Did you know that? Is that new information to anybody? And they said they're trying to develop a less toxic version of their social media. Now, us older folks, I'm not saying what makes you older, but maybe if you don't have an Instagram account, you qualify. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, but maybe having one doesn't make you young either. I don't know. But the young folks in our culture, this is what they've grown up with. They've grown up in a culture where they're sort of forced to promote themselves and see others promoting themselves, and they live for the likes. And this is what's happening. Instagram, I found out recently, it's all about getting the perfect picture. And the pressure to have the perfect picture on Instagram is overwhelming so much so that kids, I saw one video of a young couple of guys climbing up into a building that was under construction, climbing to the top floor of this high-rise building, getting on the crane, climbing up to the top of the crane, standing on top of the crane at the top of the city to get a picture to put on Instagram so they could get a following and likes. Now kids are dying doing this. They're falling off cliffs and they're getting electrocuted by trains and all kinds of things are happening because of chasing this, promoting themselves to get these likes. But what does the Bible say? Philippians chapter two, wonderful chapter. Paul lays out, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ who wouldn't be bragging to say he was equal with God, but yet he made himself of what, church? No reputation. And he humbled himself. He became a servant, took on the form of human flesh, and on and on it goes. He humbled himself. So these are the kind of things that are promoted biblically. And this is the culture of heaven, the culture of the kingdom of God. Think about Mary. And when she sings the Magnificat, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, she starts out, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. See, when I brag, when I boast, and when I promote myself, my soul has to magnify me and all that I've done. And I have to convince you that I'm worth liking and worth following and, and all of that. But the culture of heaven is different. Now, why do I bring this up? Why this long introduction? Because you're going to see back in chapter 12 that it's all about Paul and his uncomfortableness, if I can say that, 
with boasting. He is put in a place because he's really dealing with spiritual warfare. He's planted this church in Corinth. He's labored for these people. He moves on and a group of guys come in bringing, he says, another gospel. It's not just that they're saying things a little differently. They're bringing another gospel. And they're promoting themselves and they're laying out before the Corinthians all of their accolades. They're commending themselves to the people and the people are being deceived by it. They're saying, Jesus isn't enough. We don't know who this Paul guy is. I mean, we don't know why you would want to follow him. He's not as good of a speaker as we are. He doesn't have the presence we have. He doesn't have the training we have. So they're running Paul down. They're promoting themselves and the people are buying it and they're being led away from Christ. So Paul in his attempt to be humble, he doesn't talk about some of the great things he's done. Do you know anybody like that? I know some people in this church like that. There's some people that sit in these chairs right here that have done some pretty remarkable things on a human level. But you'll never know it because they won't talk about it. Because there's just a humility about God's people. Well, Paul was dealing with a different sort of animal. The self-promoting, bragging, false teachers. Paul called them ministers of Satan disguised as angels of light. So they're running Paul down. They're promoting themselves. So Paul is forced to do something that he's very uncomfortable doing. And you're going to see that even as we start chapter 12. Remember chapter 11, he gave the whole list. He met them where they were. They're Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew. They're Israelites. I'm an Israelite. They're the seed of Abraham. I'm the seed of Abraham. And then he goes on to say, am I a minister of Christ? You bet. Here's my resume. And it's not I've written books and I've gone on tour and I've discipled this many people. He could say, any of you brought someone back from the dead? I did that. I brought someone back from the dead. Any of you, somebody's healed by your sweatband? I did that. Paul could say those things, but instead he lays out a list of suffering. You want to show me someone who really loves me? Show me someone who's willing to suffer for me. Same thing for you. You want to know who really loves you? It's a person who's willing to inconvenience themselves or suffer on some level for your sake. That's what love does. So Paul lays this out to say, they may say all that great stuff about themselves, but I have suffered for you. And now he says, okay, we're going to go on past that. We're going to go to the next thing. He's going to talk about visions and revelations. Look at verse one. He says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast but I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So it starts off just saying, look, I know this isn't profitable. I know this is a waste of time. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to go on anyway to talk about visions and revelations. By the way, the word profitable means to bring together. Whenever you boast, whenever you brag, whenever you get in a conversation and you drop some hints about what you've done and how good you are and all of that, what it does is it sets you above, it makes you big and the other person feels small. Churches do the same thing. We're in this culture of self-promotion, even among churches, where one church has to exalt itself above the other churches and we have bylines and tags that tell how our church is different, our church is better, because there's competition. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a competitive spirit even among churches. And when we buy t-shirts and they wear t-shirts that say, my church is the best, I get what I'm saying is there's a really fine line when it comes to self-promoting at the expense of other people, and it causes division. There's a lot of churches that try to set themselves apart by saying, hey, here's how we're different than all those other churches. Well, if you're that different, you're probably not the church because we all basically do the same thing. 
So if you have to define yourself by what you're not, I think that's a problem. And you're going to see how uncomfortable Paul is. And it's weird for us because it's not cultural for us. Paul's so uncomfortable. He says, I know it's not profitable. It's just going to divide people. They've already got enough problems with division. We're of this teacher. You're of that teacher. He says, but you're forcing me to do it. I'm going on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Visions, something visual is what it really means. Something visual, a visual appearance. Revelations just means to take off the cover, to lay bare. That could be through a vision or through just a thought, something God reveals to you, an understanding that is new. So he talks about visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, the false apostles that Paul's dealing with, no doubt, were bragging about all of their spiritual visions. And you've been experienced some of that probably in the church world. There's the whole signs and wonders movement that has got so popular. I don't know where it is today, but where everybody's searching after the spiritual experience and it separates itself from the word of God. And it's all about promoting, well, I did this and I healed that. And here's my book on healing. And here's my book on, I saw this and God showed me that. And every so often as a pastor, you get people that come through and they got a download from God. And as soon as I hear that word, I'm already starting to shut down because I know what's coming. God gave me a download last night, pastor. And I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm like, it may be a load, but I'm not sure it's from God. Look, Paul is going to say, I've had an abundance of revelations. And it's not that we shouldn't have. We should. Visions and revelations, we'll talk about that as we go on. It's part of the Christian life. doesn't mean it happens every day. But they're confused because Paul just doesn't talk about it. He just keeps it for himself. Imagine a world in which there's a separation between what's private and what's public. Imagine that. We've just lost that separation. So for the false apostles, everything that was done privately became public to promote themselves. But for Paul, he was very careful with these things. He didn't want us to present himself to be more spiritual than he really was. This is the apostle Paul we're talking about. So this language of, I got a download, or I just went to some seminar on supernatural experiences, and then they come through, and oh, pastor, here's my download. And it never has anything to do with what they're going to do. It has to do with what I'm supposed to do. And they want to come and speak and they want me to buy their book or they want to come and give a seminar at the church about what they've learned from God. But for Paul, he had, think about Damascus Road, Acts chapter nine, Paul's vision of Jesus drops him to his knees, sets the stage for his salvation and his ministry. And I would say I had a similar experience to Paul. I got saved, not in a church, not at a Billy Graham crusade, but in a parking lot in Charlottesville, a revelation from God of my sinfulness. So yeah, these are experiences that we have. Paul, Acts chapter 16. How does the gospel make it from Asia Minor, ancient Turkey, into Europe, into Greece? Well, Paul's trying to go here. He's trying to go there. And he has what? Some of you know, a vision of the man from Macedonia. You guys have read the book, right? You've read the book of Acts. Here's a vision. So what does he do with the vision? He doesn't run around saying, okay, guys, guess what? Had another vision last night. Bet you didn't. Bet your vision wasn't as good as my vision. I got 20-20 vision. 20 visions. But instead, he gathers his team around. He says, guys, guess what? Had a vision last night. I know what God wants us to do. We're called to go to, to Europe. We're called to take this to Macedonia, Northern Greece. So for him, visions and revelations became not just encouragements for ministry, where to go, what to do, how to do it, 
but also personal encouragement. Acts chapter 18, Paul's facing opposition in Corinth. He's sharing the gospel as was his mode of operation. He's getting some kickback from that. He's evidently struggling with fear. He's evidently thinking about leaving. And he's evidently under attack or thinking there's a plan for him to be attacked. And God comes to him in a vision, in a dream, in a revelation that says, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't keep silent. I have many people here. No one will attack and hurt you. So what's Paul's response to that? He stays a year and a half. So Paul is no stranger to spiritual experience. He tells them to Luke to record in the book of Acts as they bear into his ministry, into his encouragement. Look, sometimes when God calls you to suffer, he also has to give you some strength. And we wonder in America, well, why do we see God doing all this stuff in the book of Acts? And why don't we see him doing this stuff in our midst, in our presence, in our time? Well, maybe we just don't suffer enough. Maybe if you go somewhere and you're actually suffering for the Lord, maybe God will say, okay, I need to give you strength through vision and revelation. And I've quoted Heather Mercer before. Uh, It's one of my favorite quotes who was taken captive in Afghanistan or Pakistan, I think it was, by the Taliban. And after her release, she said, everybody wants to see a miracle, but no one wants to be in the place to need one. And I thought that was a pretty wise observation. So Paul is not a stranger to Revelation. He's going to give us an example of one. And watch how he shares it. It's so unique. He says, verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast, yet of myself, I will not boast, except in my infirmities. So I love this. Who is he talking to? He says, I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago, Paul, what are you talking about? He distances himself. He's talking in the third person. You know what that means? He's talking about himself as if he was somebody else. It's like the person that goes to counseling and says, well, I have a friend who really is in trouble and really needs help. And and it's you, but you don't want to say it's you. You want to conceal your identity. So Paul's so uncomfortable, associate himself with anything regarding bragging about spiritual things that God has done in his life. He talks about himself in the third person. I do that sometimes. It's kind of cool. I find myself with my granddaughter. And I'm there talking to her and I say, oh, grandpa loves you. Grandpa loves you. And I'm like, wait a second. Why am I saying it that way? I'm grandpa, but we talk that way sometimes. Anyway, this is what came to mind. He says, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago. Now, it's hard to know exactly when this happened in Paul's life. What was the situation? What was the circumstance? Some suggest, and it's possible time-wise, that this is when Paul is stoned to death. Well, did he die? Did he not die? He even doesn't know. Outside the city of Lystra, they stone him. They bring him out and they leave him for dead. His dead body is laying there. His disciples are all gathered around. And it could be that during that time, whether he was dead or almost dead, he had some kind of, was it just that God translated him wholly and bodily into heaven to see what was going on there? Or was it that he had died, had this out-of-body experience, and then is rejoined to his body and wakes up and says, hey, we got work to do. Let's get back in the city. Paul doesn't even know. And that's not the point. It's not important about whether or not he was in the body or out of the body. What's important is that verse three, 
whether in the body or out of the body, he was caught up to paradise. Verse two, he calls it the third heaven. This is his experience and he's real uncomfortable sharing it. For us in our day, if I had an experience like that, if you had an experience like that, man, it'd be on Facebook. Where were you last night? I was in heaven. Yeah, you get a book, you know, 12 hours in heaven, 17 hours in heaven. Heaven is for real. You go on tour, you sell your CDs, you make a buck. But Paul kept it to himself. So that's why we don't know. You don't read this in the book of Acts. He shares it here cautiously because he's trying to get on the level with the braggers about their spiritual experiences. They're saying Paul doesn't have revelations like we do. And Paul's saying, oh yeah, you want to bet? I was in heaven. Now, first heaven, that's the atmosphere. where the birds fly. That's where airplanes fly. Many of us, if you've taken a plane, you've kind of been there. Second heaven, where's that? Outer space. A lot fewer people have been there. How many people have walked on the moon? Anybody here ever been to outer space? See, so if you really want to brag at a party, become an astronaut, go to outer space. Because when some foolish person is bragging at a party, at an office party, and they're saying all that they've done, you can just say, yeah, I've been to outer space. Can you say that? So you can brag about that. Now, Paul, not first heaven, not second heaven, third heaven, the dwelling place of God. And he says that he calls it paradise. That's a word taken right over from Persian. Now, in the Persian culture, when you were a Persian landowner, a wealthy nobleman, you would have a big tract of land, possibly enclosed by a wall, and you would have animals there, and it'd be gardens, it'd be beautiful, botanical garden kind of thing. And if you had someone you wanted to really bless, you would invite them to come to walk with you in your botanical garden, in your paradiso. So that's where the word paradise comes from. It's a direct transliteration from Persian. And the idea is that Paul was invited to heaven to walk with God in his garden. And it goes back, the Garden of Eden is connected to that and such things. So Paul, caught up into heaven, tell us what this is like. Can you explain it to us? Can you describe it to us? He says, actually, I can't. First of all, I don't even know if I was in my body or out of my body. Second of all, what I heard there, you can't express it. So notice what he's doing. He's pointing out a difference between his real experience and probably some of the faked and trumped up experiences from the false apostles that are there in Corinth. They're sharing all about their experiences. Paul says, I'm sorry, my experience, it can't be explained. I can't put it into words. I heard words. Try explaining to an unborn baby in utero the beauty of Psalm 23. Try explaining the English language. Try explaining Cantonese to someone who speaks English. I've been spending two weeks in Hong Kong listening to Cantonese. I can't explain that to you. I don't understand it. I can't express it to you what the language was. So evidently, Paul hears things, sees things. You know, we come to this period in our lives, we recognize, you know, our time is short and nobody gets out of here alive. And Paul, you got to wonder when he writes to the Philippians and he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. With this as the backdrop, with what he saw, what he heard, he says, I don't know, you know, if I had a choice of to live on here on planet earth or to go and be with the Lord in heaven, I'm not sure what I would choose. There's a part of me that would choose paradise right now. But because we don't have a comprehension of, because we don't understand it, we're earth-centric and we try to cling to our lives here. Just like a baby in the womb. Imagine trying to explain to the baby, like, I know where you are. It's full of darkness. It's the only existence they know. It's warm and it's comfortable and you're used to it. But wait till you come on this side. 
Wait till you see a sunset. Wait till you see a sunrise. Wait till you see the fall colors in Virginia, even if they're not so great this year. How do you explain that to someone who's never had the experience? So Paul said, I could try to explain to you what I saw in heaven, but you have no frame of reference. So not only is it inexpressible, also he says it's unlawful. It would not do it justice to even try to explain it because whatever I could say to you would fall short. All I can say is you ain't going to regret it. I added that. That's me. I added that. But I was caught up and had this experience and he shares it in the third person as if it's somebody else because he just doesn't want to boast about it. Isn't that so different than us, isn't it? I know it is for me. Like it's so subtle. Boasting is so subtle. And I drop in things every so often. Oh, you know, yeah, I did this. Oh, I did that. We want people to go, ooh, ah, impressive. But I didn't do anything. I mean, who can take credit for it? Paul can't take credit for this. And now it's interesting he says, verse six, for though I might desire to boast as we do, yet I won't be a fool. So that's why he's speaking. He's got to speak about somebody else. I'm not going to be a fool. I'll talk about someone else I know. And he says, but I'll not be a fool, but I'll speak the truth. So what Paul is saying is, if you're saying I don't have revelations and visions, I can't lie and say I don't. I have to tell you the truth. I have, and I do regularly. There's others in the book of Acts as well but I'm not going to go around bragging about them. And he says, why? But I refrain because I don't want anyone to think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So these spiritual experiences, visions, revelations, downloads from God, whatever you want to call it, whatever signs and wonders and spiritual charismania people get involved in, the bottom line is you judge people based on your experience with them. See, Paul was dealing with people that commended themselves. Remember that? He said, I won't class myself with people that are commending themselves. He doesn't want to get pulled into this, but there was the culture of self-promotion. He says, it doesn't matter. It's not who commends himself that is pleasing to the Lord. It's the one the Lord commends. So how do you validate someone's experience like that? How do you validate their spiritual experience, their vision, their revelation? You know, a revelation has to be validated by the word of God. And so the guy that came to my office he had the audacity to write it down with dates. Here's what God is doing. God gave me the download. I wrote it down. Here it is, the dates. I had it for years on my bulletin board and I was just collecting stones from around the neighborhood. You know, when the date passed and it didn't happen, we could stone him to death as a false prophet. He didn't think about that though. But in the Old Testament, someone came and prophesied in the name of the Lord. It doesn't come true. Guess what? You're a false prophet. But how do you validate that stuff? But what can be validated is fruit. Paul would say to the Corinthians, even if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, even if you could communicate whatever words Paul heard in heaven, if you have not love, it profits you nothing. It's nothing. So Paul says, all I want is people to think of me, not about what I say about myself, but what you experience with me. Do you see that? Lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be, where here's for me. And maybe you guys have seen this book, the Calvary Chapel, Welcome to Calvary Chapel booklet. We printed this a number of years ago because we want people to know how do we feel about leadership and what do we do with baptism? Is there a church membership? So we put some static things in here. And in the beginning, I was tasked with writing the introductory paragraph. And I want to tell you, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to write. And I'll tell you why. Because whatever I put in here 
has got to be true for your experience. So if I say in here, oh, we're a church where everybody loves everybody. And then you come in and Joe Bag of Donuts is having a bad day and he tears your head off in the parking lot because you almost cut him off. And then you come in here and you pick up a booklet and he goes, hi, Calvary Chapel. Yeah, oh, the church where everybody loves everybody. And you're like, well, that guy in the parking lot didn't love me. It's not true. So we make all these claims about we're self-promoting and our about page. What do you write? So I labored over this because whatever was said had to be universally true. So what I ended up fixing myself on was the fact that we all come from difficult places, struggling places. We all have weaknesses. We all have bad days. We all get snarky, but we have a God who's gracious. And if you can fit in with us snarky, inconsistent people that are making an attempt to express the love of God through our (laughs) difficult lives on tough days where things don't go like we planned, where we experience pain, we experience rejection, all that stuff going on. If you connect with that, then maybe you're in the right place. But can I say we're the church that always does this? We're great at this and we love people and we're always gracious. I can't say that because it's not true. And that's the difference. That's why it's hard to write that. Try to write a resume where you balance. I mean, it's a balance between saying enough, but saying too much. But I'll bet you, if you take a different tact, you'd be surprised at how many people where it's refreshing to say honesty about yourself. Like, here's what I've done, but you know what? I struggle with this. You'd be surprised how many people go, wow. There's a girl that was applying to college and our college entrance exam or entrance essay She wrote, you know, I'm not really a leader. I'm kind of a follower. And uh, I'm just kind of love to attend the university and haven't really done a whole lot of great things, but I'd like to come. And she got an acceptance letter back that said, this year, matriculating in our university, we have 5,723 leaders. We figured they might need somebody to follow them. (laughs) So welcome to our campus. (laughs) Though I might desire to boast, I won't be a fool. I'll speak the truth but I refrain from boasting lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Let your actions speak louder than your words. And verse seven says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation. So Paul had a lot of them. And the temptation for Paul was to become proud of those things, to become self-exalted because of those things. And he says, here's what God did. Here's how God He gives me these revelations, but he gives me another gift alongside, a complimentary gift to go alongside of me. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure, that's the danger, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. That sounds painful. He says, it's a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to beat me up, lest I be exalted above measure. So Paul is really worried himself about boasting, And Paul understands that God is worried about him boasting. I mean, if God did everything for you, if he made your life just squeaky clean, took away every problem you have, no one could live with you. You'd get so self-confident and so self-assured, you'd have no need for God and it would ruin you. Now, Paul, in dealing with his ministry, traveling like he did, suffering like he did, God gives him revelations to keep him going but also gives him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. And I know some folks around this church, you know, the word thorn, it's a pointed piece of wood. That's all it means. A pointed piece of wood can be something as small as a splinter. If you've ever had a splinter, 
you know what an annoying little painful thing that can be. Even a little teeny tiny sliver stuck under your skin for a few days gets infected, gets painful, and it causes distraction. But this could mean, and some say it means a stake, a wooden stake. So Paul says, not only do I have these revelations and the danger of becoming proud of them, but God also gave me a pointed piece of wood in my flesh, a painful experience that I live with in my life. And he says, this was a minister, a messenger of Satan with the purpose of harassing me, tormenting me, causing me trouble and irritation. Now, the question that's asked is, what was it? Don't you want to know, Paul, what was it? People suggest all kinds of things from Paul having epilepsy to sexual temptation to eye and eye disease that he contracted that causes his eyes to be weepy and pussy and all that. Some say that it was just Paul's physical presence. He was just ugly and that was his burden to bear. his thorn in the flesh. We don't know. I tend to think because it says messenger of Satan, the word messenger is also translated angel 179 times. Seven times is translated messenger. Messenger and angel are same thing. You determine what to translate it as by the context. So it could be translated an angel of Satan. Now he just called in chapter 11, these false teachers, angels of light. They disguise themselves as angels of light. So it could be that the guy who's the ringleader for the anti-Paul movement in Corinth is his thorn in the flesh. Could be a person. Now it's left blessedly nondescript because we can all relate to it. And notice he says, the purpose is to beat up on me. It's from Satan. Now God allows it. Satan promotes it. God uses it. He's using it to keep Paul humble. But you know how Satan works. So here's Paul, people getting healed under his ministry, people getting saved under his ministry. He's gone through all he's gone through. And now he's got some issue going on. And he prays, look at verse eight, concerning this thing, person or thing, whatever it is, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He's praying about it. God, can you help me out? I'm hurting. It's painful. It's difficult. It's an irritant. Can you take it away from me? Three times, he says. For some of you, it's a physical thing. It's a physical malady. It's an emotional malady. It's a depression. It's a discouragement. And you prayed about it. And you go, oh, why doesn't God take it away? Well, you're in good company. Paul prayed about it three times. Can you imagine what Satan is saying to Paul? Oh yeah, Paul, you think you're so great. You've healed people. Why aren't you getting healed? Maybe God doesn't really love you after all. Maybe you're living a lie, Paul. Maybe this God you serve doesn't care about you. Can you imagine? You know it. You think those same thoughts in your brain. Satan tries to beat you up, beat you up. And that's what Satan is doing through this thorn to Paul. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times, I want removal. Isn't that what we want? We pray, God, removal. But God prays revival. I pray removal. God brings revival. He says, pleaded with the Lord three times. So it wasn't that his prayer was unanswered. He got an answer to his prayer, verse nine. And he said to me, his answer is his words. His answer is communication. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God would say to Paul, haven't I seen you through to now? Don't you think Paul is questioning, can God really get me through this? Can I really survive it? How many of you have gone through some stuff in your life? Have you gone through some stuff? Has God met you there? 
Has it been difficult? But have you found some source of strength that you didn't know existed, but you would never have known if you hadn't been in a moment of weakness? I mean, when I come down here to sit here, 15 years I've been doing this, and I still am scared to death of public speaking. And I sit up in my office and I prepare and I, you should see me. The guys will come into the office early in the morning, you know, 7 a.m., 7.30 a.m., 8 o'clock in the morning, 8.30, and there I am. And they go, Steve, you ready yet? Uh-uh. When will you be ready? I don't know. Never. I sit and I just prepare talking to the Lord going, God, I don't know if I can do this. What am I going to say? How am I going to get through? And every week, week after week, I come down here and go, I don't know what comes next. I don't know if I'm going to get through because I'm dependent, not on my preparation is important, but when it comes down to it, it's the dependency on the Lord. And weakness, your understanding of your weakness is what keeps you dependent on the Lord. My grace is sufficient. You look at another person, you go, I don't know how they're dealing with that. I don't know how they can get through that. God gives you the grace to get through it when you need the grace to get through it. You want to get into ministry, you want to do some things, you want to put yourself in harm's way for the sake of the gospel, then you maybe will experience more revelations from the Lord, but you also may experience more humbling. The greater things you do for the Lord, the more humbling is necessary for that. Nobody is ever too weak to be used by God. The great danger is to become too strong to be used by God. The safest place is in our weakness. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, My strength, you'll never understand the capacity of my strength until you are in a place where you are weak. Now, a lot of us live there. We've got depression issues. We've got family issues. We've got, sometimes it's poverty. Sometimes it's difficulty. And you go, oh, Lord, take it away. And he says, I'm going to let you keep that one because it's going to keep you coming to me. Do you know what I'm talking about, church? How many of you have something in your life you said, God, take this away. Take this away. And he hasn't. And you go, oh, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know what's going on. And here, maybe you can connect with the Apostle Paul here. Maybe you can connect with this thorn in his flesh. Therefore, the end of that verse says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. And here's why. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. You want to see the power of Christ in your life? I mean, do you really? We talk about a powerless church, don't we? The church today in America, feeling, experiencing a form of godliness, a form of godliness, but denying the power. Because when our church was small, we had no praise team, we were dependent. The key is that now that we have a building, now that we have a praise team, and now that we have the ministries and all this stuff, do we become less dependent on God? Okay, God, be great. We don't, but we don't need you right now. We got it covered. We figured it out now. We know how to do church service. We know how to do evangelism. We know how to do leadership training. We know how to do prayer meetings. Or are we, church, still going, God, without you, we can't do anything. With you, all things are possible. Without you, in my flesh, there's no good thing. I can't do it. Are we a church dependent on God? Look what he says. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and in needs. Do you take pleasure in those things? Are these things that you're delighted to go, oh, yes, I have so many needs today, pastor. It's glorious. I'm so needy. If God doesn't do it, I'm going under. Persecutions, distresses. Anybody been distressed? When are you tended to cry out to God? When you're blessed or when you're distressed? 
in our blessing, we forget about God. We go, oh, look, I'm a self-made man. Look at the life I've built. But then when we're distressed, we go, oh God, oh God, we're so weak. Do you know we walk a razor's edge? You know it? We have this fallacy of strength. And when you realize that, that's when you can actually become strong. That's how Paul ends it out here. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because when I am weak, I'm dependent on God. First Corinthians, he writes, God uses the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty. When I look around the room, when I look in the mirror, I go, man, what you have done, God. So we're just a group of people, a group of weak people going, man, if only the Lord would use his strength through us. And then when something cool happens, you go, wow, to God be the glory, right? I didn't do it. It's not my education. It's not my training. It's not the courses I've been to, the books I've read. If God doesn't do it, it ain't happening, at least not in the spiritual sense. 